0: Well, good morning, Calvary Southerton, and good morning to all of you at Calvary Quakertown. It's good to have you all with us this morning. I was going to start by asking if you had a good week this past week, but then I figured after eight inches of snow, freezing temperatures, and howling wind, you couldn't have had a good week, so I'm not going to skip that part. But I am going to say that if you listened to the song the band sang and the video that we just had up, I really don't need to preach a sermon. I am going to preach a sermon because I don't think you listened well, but the whole message of the series was kind of in those two pieces. In the video that we just watched, we point to this and we point to that and we say, now this is the life. If I had this and we're living and surrounding ourselves with things that we think will give us that life, but it's not working, is it? We need to find the life that Jesus calls us to and we need to say, I'm not going to stay here anymore. I'm not going to stay wallowing around in the life as I designed it. I'm going to move from where I am to where Jesus wants me to be, because that really is the life. Now, we started this series by uh, looking at Matthew chapter 10. We started by looking at the team, those people that Jesus called together. And we said, it's kind of an unlikely team, wasn't it? Different backgrounds, different occupations, different educational levels, different socioeconomic levels. And they came together And my guess is there were lots of disagreements, arguments, and outright fights between the group. But that's the team. Jesus assembles a group of people that couldn't be more different. And he says, now together, make me the center, and we're going to go and change the world. Because where there is diversity, I will bring unity. And then we looked at the assignment last week. And we said the assignment is all from the momentum of motivation, which is compassion. The motivation is compassion for people and for groups wandering around unable to figure it out, but God comes and tells them the score. And how do we take that message? In word and deed. We speak words of grace and we do actions of grace. We live the kingdom and we speak the kingdom. Well, that raises a question. then. Well, we looked at the team and we looked at the assignment, but isn't there a way that we could take the life that we're describing and Put into a short little compact statement so we know what it is. Well, we can. In fact, Matthew records it. Jesus said it. Here's where it is in Matthew 22. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the life. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's how he loved us. And then as an expression of that love, love your neighbor, love other people, love God, love people, that's the life. You got it? Yeah, but sometimes hearing it in a statement doesn't quite connect. So what we're going to do this morning, we're going to look at a passage that illustrates loving God and loving people from both directions. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 7. We're going to look at Luke 7, beginning of verse 36. Luke 7, 36 to 50, a familiar passage, but we're going to look at it through the lens of this is the life. This is the life we're called to. And I want you to compare and contrast your life to the life described there. But in order to do that, you have to know something about smells. You see, we read the Bible and we don't really smell anything unless it stinks in your house when you're reading. But you've got to understand smells to understand the passage. So just to get us in the frame of mind to understand the passage, I'm going to put some pictures up here, and I'm going to ask you to respond with either a ooh, nasty smell, or ah, that's a great smell. Let's practice. Do the ooh first. Ooh. <laughs> now, that's not that nasty. Do it nastier. Ew, yeah, yeah. You know those smells, right? Or ah, ah, there we go, okay? So I'm going to show you some pictures, and we'll ooh and ah together. Here we go. First one. Ah, yeah. I heard a new out there. What the heck? <laughs> Starbucks Dark Roast is an ah. Yes. I had a few cups already today. As you can tell, I'll be speaking faster than normal. Yeah, Starbucks Freshly Roasted Coffee, that's an ah. How about this one? Gasoline. That's kind of both of you, right? <laughs> yeah, some of you like the Huff Magic Markers, too. I know. Gasoline is an ooh sound, not an ah sound, right? Some of you are sick. Uh, all right, how about this one? Boy, that smell lingers, too, doesn't it? I mean, it could be a skunk killed in the road a week later. It's still stinking when you drive near that spot. Skunk is an ooh. Here's the next one. Ah, uh, yes. Provided, you know, the flu's open and you're not being asphyxiated when you're watching. But, yeah, that's an ah, right? A fresh... Freshly smelling, crackling fire. That's an ah. Next one. Ah, yeah, yeah. Whether it's steak, burgers, bacon, pork chops, think about it. Any flesh on the grill smells good, doesn't it? I'm not sure if you put your hand on the grate, but, you know, you put flesh on the grill. That's a good smell, isn't it? All right, how about our next one? Ah, yes. We don't need any of that nonsense on the top. Like, uh, I hate Cool Whip, by the way, but even wh- we don't need whipped cream, ice cream. Just a good apple pie. Crumb topping works better, but you know what I'm saying. Apple pie is good. All right, one last one. Ooh, ah. Uh, I mean, feet are not only nasty looking, they stink, right? Um, I'm not, I don't understand this foot fetish thing at all, right? But, yeah, feet, that, that's a nasty smell. Uh, now, you got smells kind of in your mind? You've got to understand smells or you can't understand the passage. Now, with your mind thinking about smells, you follow along or you listen and see what smells they would have been smelling in this particular episode, beginning of verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissing them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who it is that's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's kind of an interesting story. Well, first of all, let's talk about the setting. And this is where the smells come in. They're having a dinner party, a big banquet, right? Which means they had all the smells of a dinner in the room. That means if you were at this banquet, you would have smelled roasting meat. Maybe it was steak. Maybe it was lamb. It wasn't bacon or pork chops, right? They were, they were Jewish. So they weren't having pork. But you would have had meat that was roasting. It's in the Middle East. They would have certainly had peppers, onions, and garlic. That would have smelled good. You know, come to think, of it, that's all I need. Italian bread, peppers, and onions, and steak. That, that's about all you need. Well, anyway. Uh, you would have smelled all of those smells. Maybe they would have had apple pie for dessert. You would have smelled all of those smells. They would have all been in the room. You show up for a big dinner, and they're smelling the smells. They didn't have a kitchen that was way down the hall. The kitchen would have been right there. Maybe the the grill where they're cooking the meat is right there in the midst of them. The garlic is is on the platter, the peppers, the onions. All the things are being passed, and the smells of the banquet are being smelled by everyone there. Oh, yeah. And you would have also smelled feet and B.O., You see, we live in a culture that's kind of obsessed with being clean and smelling nice. That was not this culture. We bathe, or should bathe, every day, right? They didn't bathe every day. They went days and days, maybe a couple weeks, without bathing. They didn't have deodorized soap. They didn't have deodorant. They didn't have any of those things. And they walked around the roads in sandaled feet. You know how you're... Feet smell when you're wearing flip-flops in the summer and you're sweating. The roads were dusty. The roads were dirty. They traveled around. Animals were kind of walking around the roads. It stunk in that room. And so in the room, you had the smells of roasted meat and peppers, onion, garlic, and feet and B.O. That's all in the room. You would have smelled all of that together. What a wonderful scent, right? In fact, one of the things that we have failed to realize in our very sanitized nicely smelling world, is that one of the reasons that they used to burn incense in places of worship or in homes was to mask the stench coming from the people's bodies. It was a smelly kind of world, right? And so they got all the nice smells of the meal and the nasty smells from bodies. It's all in the room. That's the setting. In fact, here's, here, here's what, what it's like. One of the Pharisees, "...invited Jesus to have dinner with him, so Jesus went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table." Now, they didn't have chairs and sit at a table the way we do. They would recline at the table, which meant the table was either on the ground. You spread out a little blanket or something. You put the meal on that or raised a little bit. You would lean on your one elbow. You'd eat with the other hand, and your feet were hopefully away from the table. You don't want them too close to the food because they stink, right? So all of the dignitaries or important people are around the table. Kind of shoulder to shoulder to shoulder all the way around the table. But this was kind of a weird thing. Simon, being one of the religious leaders of town, had an open guest list. Which means anybody could kind of show up. Now you couldn't eat and you couldn't say anything. But you could show up, listen and learn. That was the point. So the dignitaries are having a discussion. Right? The real important people are having a discussion. But anybody was allowed to come and listen in and maybe learn something and kind of better yourself. Kind of like if there's a press conference. The reporters are all there kind of listening in, but the dignitaries and the important people, they get to talk and they get to eat. Same idea. Now, the host at one of these uh, banquets had a few responsibilities. And you have to remember, hospitality was like a, a high priority. The host would typically greet the honored guests. Now, that, you don't greet your friends and your family members, right? But when an important person comes, you would greet them. So here's Simon, the religious leader in town, having a get. Jesus being the respected, honored guest, supposedly. Jesus should have been greeted by Simon. And in that culture, they would greet you with a kiss. I know that's kind of disgusting, but that's how they did it. We shake hands. That's disgusting, too, right? A person may sneeze and slobber in their hand, and they come and shake your hand. No wonder we're all sick. Um, fist bumping is a much better way to greet people, by the way. But they would have greeted one another with a kiss. Not just that, the host would have, would have supplied foot washing for the guest. Not for everybody standing around, but for everybody at the table. Now the host wasn't going to wash feet himself, he's too important for that. But he would have had a low-level slave, you know, maybe a teenager or a little kid. And the teenager or little kid would have washed everybody's feet... Because they didn't wear shoes, they didn't wear socks. They traveled around, the roads were dusty, a very arid climate. They'd come in, you know, your feet were kind of messy. And so the the servant would wash your feet and bring refreshment. And one other thing a host would do, they would supply scented olive oil. Olive oil, right, kind of a, you know, it kind of soothes. And it would put some spices or scent in it. And when an honored guest would show up, somebody would pour a little olive oil into your hands, rub it on your hand, wipe it on your face, and it brings refreshment. Again, in an arid climate, your skin's kind of dry and cracked, put a little scented olive oil on, you smell better. You put some under your nose so you don't smell the stinking person next to you. See how that works? Now, if you've ever flown on a long-distance flight, you know that they still do that, right? If you've been flying for a couple of hours, when you start the descent, somebody comes up and down the aisle with little tongs, right? And they hand you a nice, warm wash rag that has a nice smell kind of the same idea. You've been sitting on the plane breathing that nasty recirculated air for the past three hours. and Instead, so he brings you something to refresh you. That would have been the host's responsibility. So we can tell already Simon is not too fired up about Jesus coming to his house. It's almost as if he's obligated to have him over, but he doesn't want him there. If he wanted him there, he would have honored him by doing what should have been done. He disrespects Jesus. He dishonors him showing us he really doesn't want him there, but he has to jump through those hoops of responsibility. That's the setting, with all the scents and all the smells you can imagine. Well, let's uh, talk about the cast of characters. We already mentioned Simon a little bit, but let's uh, talk about his profile. Here's Simon. That's his name. This is not Simon Peter, not Simon the Zealot, not Simon the Leper, not Simon Cow, not Paul Simon or Carly Simon. This is a different Simon. This is Simon the Pharisee. What's his occupation? He is the guardian of truth and the teacher of truth. His job is to make sure that people hear what the Bible says and that people that teach error are called out for being heretics. That's his job. What's his religion? He's a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees were like the strictest of the Jewish sects. Um, and we often say pharisee and think bad thoughts because you know we're, we're in church but in jesus day the pharisees were the good guys they were the ones that believed the bible they were the ones that taught what the bible said they studied it and lived in light of it the pharisees were the good guys so simon's not a bad guy simon's a good guy in the eyes of everybody in the town now what's his character he's righteous he's pious He's pompous, arrogant, and self-righteous, too. What are some aliases for Simon? Well, Jesus calls them names at times. Uh, whitewashed tomb, brood of vipers, hypocrite. You can kind of tell Jesus isn't uh, particularly loving on the Pharisees, right? And so those are a few aliases that Simon has. And Simon is disrespecting his guest. Get the picture? That's the profile of Simon. Well, we also am, are introduced to a woman in the story. So let's run through her profile. What's her name? Did you pick it up as I read through? What's her name? Isn't that interesting? She's uh, not named. Her name's not given. Which actually tells us a whole lot. When you read the Bible, or when you read any ancient literature, only people worthy of being named are actually named. In fact, when you read some of the stories in the Bible, you can tell who was unimportant and who really isn't important at all by whether they're named or not. If you're important, you get your name named. If you're not important, nobody names you. What's her religion? Well, first of all, what's her occupation? uh, Most likely, she's a prostitute. I know she's called a sinner from the city, but some of the language that Simon uses later, uh, essentially calling her dirt, scum from the city, as best we can tell, she would have been a prostitute. That was her occupation. What's her religion? Uh, Not applicable, or maybe she was the first nun, first of the nuns. You've heard of the nuns? Maybe not the nuns, nuns, Catholic nuns. The other nuns, N-O-N-E-S. She probably didn't have a religion. If she did, she had to practice her religion in private. They didn't want her in the town, let alone in the synagogue. There was no way she was allowed near, near the synagogue, and Simon certainly didn't want her in his house either. What's her character? Well, we're told she's sinful. She's a sinner. She's immoral. Well, what are some aliases? What are some names you think she was called in her day? I would love to spout a few for you, but I figured you'd send me emails this week in complaint, and Kim will be mad at me this afternoon. So we'll just leave the aliases out there hanging, and you can think of those aliases yourself, all right? Well, we have one third character in the story, and that's Jesus. Um, Jesus was given that name actually by God, communicated to an angel. The angel told Joseph and Mary, name your son Jesus, which kind of means God will save. That's his name. Christ, by the way, is not Jesus' last name. That's kind of his title. We'll get there in a minute. Well, what's Jesus' occupation? Well, he was a former carpenter, itinerant preacher, oh yeah, savior of the world. That's his occupation, right? Carpenter, preacher, savior of the world. What's his religion? Well, he was born and raised Jewish, and he's the founder of Christianity. Character impeccable, perfect, holy, holy, holy. That's some group of people, isn't it? I mean, we got a slut from the city, we got a pompous, self-righteous Pharisee, and Jesus, holy, 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 hanging out together. That's kind of interesting. Um, How about aliases for Jesus? King? King of kings. Messiah? Savior. Savior redeemer. Beelzebub. He had a lot of names, too. Well, those are the cast of characters that we read about in the story. Kind of interesting how they hang out, right? You know, one of the amazing things as you read through the Gospels is to discover how often Jesus goes to people's homes to eat. If they would have had restaurants then, he would have been going to restaurants. He's always eating somewhere, and he eats with the most unlikely people. He eats with Zacchaeus, remember? A hated tax collector. And a religious heat, right, other Pharisees, they show up and say, Jesus, what the heck are you doing? Eat with somebody like Zacchaeus. And he says, whoa, time out. I've come to seek and to save the lost. Another occasion, he goes to Matthew's house. Matthew was like a honcho with the Roman IRS. Jesus eats at his house. Matthew invites all of his IRS agent friends. They all show up. Again, the religious heat comes. Jesus, do you know who you're eating with? We can't believe you're here. And Jesus says, guys, don't you understand? The sick need a doctor, not those that are well. By the way, I'm the great physician. I'm coming to bring healing where it's needed. Jesus is always eating. And when he eats with people, it's usually a group kind of like this. There's usually some really nasty sinners there. There's some religious heat that are critiquing Jesus for being there. And then Jesus is there hanging out with these groups of people. And by the end of the story, he's kind of in the face of the religious guys. And he's usually accepting and welcoming the sinful guys. Kind of funny how that goes, but it's the same story over and over and over and over again. Well, how does the plot unfold? How does the plot unfold? Well, it goes uh, something like this. Jesus shows up at Simon's house because he's been invited. Now, how would Simon know to invite him? Well, as best we can tell, there's a backstory to this incident. And it probably went like this. Jesus showed up in Simon's town and he began to do what he always did. He would teach, he would heal, he would be bringing good news of the kingdom and bringing actions of the kingdom too. Just like last week when we talked about the assignment, wording and deeding, right? Doing good, good deeds and sharing good news. That's what Jesus was doing. In fact, if you read the preceding paragraphs to Luke seven you'll discover some of the people were saying, hey, this Jesus is a great prophet. And then John the Baptist has a few of his disciples go and say, so Jesus Are you the one or what like are you really the one and what does jesus say just watch what i do and listen to what i say and they go back and say john he's the one he's the messiah he is a great prophet he's the messiah so jesus had been there in the town simon being the guardian of truth probably heard jesus was there began to hear what he was saying heard what he was doing and showed up simon's job is to protect the people from heretic preachers. So he shows up. He hears Jesus saying things. He's, he's not buying it, is he? Does Simon think Jesus is a prophet? Heck no. Does Simon think he's the Messiah? No way. But Simon has to interrogate him, right? Where do you interrogate best? On your own turf. So Simon hears Jesus, sees what he's doing, says, All right, Jesus, I'm like the religious big guy. You want to come to my house for lunch? He's hoping Jesus says no. Jesus says, Simon, I'd love to come. When, when are we eating? So they show up. Jesus is there, but Simon disrespects him from the minute he gets there. There's no greeting with a kiss. There's nobody to wash his feet. There's no refreshment for his face. Jesus completely disrespected. You know what that would be like? That would be like a really honored guest coming to your house. And you look out the window next to the door and you see him. You close the window and tell everybody to be quiet and turn the lights out because you don't want him there. You invite him in, but you don't take his coat. You don't take her coat. You don't offer him something warm to drink you just kind of disrespect him you leave him in the other room when you everybody else goes out to eat you wouldn't do that that's what simon's doing well in the midst of this discussion they're now at the table jesus has dirty feet jesus face is cracked and dry jesus is leaning at the table simon's probably next to him and a whole bunch of people from the town come because hey they've heard there's a big banquet They've heard and seen what Jesus said and did. They want to come and see what's going to happen, right? They're expecting fireworks at the banquet, I'm guessing. And do you believe she shows up? That slut from the city shows up, right? Um, She comes to... Now, think of the courage it must have taken on her part to show up. She shows up, and my guess is she slinks in. She's not wanted in the city. Simon certainly doesn't want her at his house. Um, how did she know where Simon lived? I don't know, maybe she was there on business. We don't know, but she shows up. She surveys the situation, sees where Jesus is, and stands right behind Jesus. Now, it's not a huge room. There's not like 40 yards between Jesus and her. She's probably real close, right, to, right with Jesus. She comes on a mission. The mission is one of gratitude and thanksgiving. Remember the backstory. Here's the backstory from the woman's side. She heard Jesus preach the day before, too. And she was buying everything he was saying. When she heard he's a great prophet, she said, I believe it. When she saw the deeds and heard that he's the Messiah who comes to bring acceptance and forgiveness, she bought it. And her life was changed. Just like we sang this morning, her heart was awakened And once she was dead in her sin, now she's alive by grace. And she experiences that. And she comes on a mission the next day to Simon's house. She doesn't care what the people think. She's on a mission of gratitude and thanksgiving for the awakening that the Savior brought into her life. And she comes with perfume to pour it out on Jesus and say thank you as she gives him a gift from her life. Well, Simon can't believe that uh, she's there. She walks up close to Jesus, and she's overcome with joy. She starts to cry. Have you ever been so overcome with joy you start to cry? I know all you guys say, no, nope, not me, not me. Yeah, how about when that first baby or second baby squirted out, right? Uh, yeah, you probably cried, or that grandkid, yeah, you're going to cry. Overcome with joy. And women are much more willing to admit they cry. Men cry. We just try to hide it better. The woman is overcome with tears of joy. She's so close to Jesus, she bends down. She's on a mission. She's going to pour the perfume on Jesus. But all of a sudden, she notices the tears are falling from her face, and they're falling onto Jesus' dirty feet. And since his feet weren't washed, the tears hit his feet, and they're making little mud puddles on his feet. Well, she can't leave, you know, the Savior's feet all muddy. What's she going to do? Ask Simon for his napkin? Simon, could I borrow your napkin? Simon wouldn't even talk to her or look at her, let alone give her, a na- give her his napkin. So she does the only thing she can do. She pulls the pin that holds her hair up, her hair falls down, and she wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. You may say, that's pretty disgusting. Oh, it was more than that. You see, in that culture, a woman's hair was a private part. Your hair was covered and concealed. Only your husband, your close family members, would see your hair down. This woman whips her private part out right at the banquet. And so now Jesus has muddy feet. She's wiping his feet with her private part. Everybody's gone ballistic, right? And then she takes the perfume, pours them on Jesus' feet, and immediately the smells in the room change. Remember the smells of the room? Roasting meat, onions, peppers, garlic, apple pie. Now everybody smells perfume. She may have come to do this in private, but it's become very public now. Everybody looks. Everybody knows. Simon is absolutely livid. Simon now has evidence that Jesus is a heretic. Look what he says. This is great. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to him, now you've got to watch this, he said to himself, in other words, he thought. When you say something to yourself, you're thinking it. Right? No words are uttered. He said to himself, he thought, if this man were a prophet, see, he heard that from the day before, if he were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. You see, religious people back in that day, they thought that sin was, um, was a communicable disease. You get too close to a sinner, you kind of become a sinner. You you get the disease too, right? And Jesus is always hanging out and interfacing with sinners. Therefore, he must have gotten the disease. And Simon now has evidence. Jesus can't be a prophet because Jesus would never hang out with a woman like this. Therefore, he must not know. And the next phrase is awesome. Look at this. Jesus answered him. Simon hadn't said anything. Simon thought. If he, this guy were a prophet, he didn't say anything. Jesus answers Simon's thought. In other words, hey, big guy, I'm going to respond to what you're thinking because I really want you to understand who I am too. That's amazing, isn't it? And so Jesus tries to convince Simon and get a hold of Simon's heart. So Jesus says, Simon, I have a question for you. Suppose there were two debtors. One debtor owed 500 denarii and the other debtor 50. Now, denarii is basically a day's pay, right? But I don't think any of you got paid in denarii this past week. Uh, So let's uh, bring that into our culture, right? So if you're making, if you make 10 bucks an hour, eight hours a day, that's 80 bucks, times 500, that's $40,000. The first guy owes $40,000 to the lender. The next guy, he, he makes 10 bucks an hour, works eight hours, that's 80. He only owes 50 days' wages. He owes four grand. The one debtor owes $40,000. The other debtor owes $4,000. Neither of them can pay. The lender says, I forgive both of your debts. Jesus then says, So, Simon, which of the debtors would love the lender more? Simon says, The guy that was forgiven, $40,000. Jesus said, right, Simon. That's the first thing he got right since the party started. Yes. And then he looked at the woman and he said, "Uh, Simon, she's been forgiven $40,000 worth of sin. And the problem is you think you're only owed $4,000 and therefore you sit there pompous and self-righteous because you think you're better than she is. Boy, my how that story stings, huh? Well, what are some lessons from the story? We could tease out lessons all afternoon, but some of you have important things to do. So I'll just mention a couple of the lessons. Here's the first lesson. Jesus never makes light of sin. Does Jesus say to the woman, you know what? So you're a sinner. Big whoop, right? Everybody sins. No, he doesn't say that, right? He says to the woman, your sins, the real sins, those things you're guilty of, those things that will condemn you forever, those things that have separated you from God, all those things are real. But they're forgiven. He's not making light of sin. We make light of sin. God always takes sin seriously. We make light of it. God treats it seriously. Here's another important lesson. The woman's love does not save her. Jesus' love saves her. And I can prove it. How did the parable go that Jesus told, right? When Jesus tells the parable, he's giving us the sequence. What does he say? There's somebody that owes $40,000 and somebody owes $4,000. Notice the love that they have follows the forgiveness they've been granted. We don't have the whole backstory in the verses, but it obviously is there. When Jesus tells the parable, he says, who's going to love more? The guy that was forgiven $40,000 is going to love more. Notice the forgiveness precedes the act of love that follows. The woman accepted the gift previously, and now she comes in gratitude and thanksgiving for what was done. Jesus' love caused the incident. Her love follows Jesus' love. Don't get that backwards. Religion gets it back. Simon had it backwards. How about another lesson? Only Jesus can forgive sins. Notice how hostile the group was at the end. Jesus says, he looks at the woman, your sins are forgiven. The group says, who the heck does he think he is? Only God can forgive sins. Jesus says, that's right, your sins are forgiven. See, it works like this. The only person that can forgive your debt is the person to whom you're indebted. So if I were to announce, you know, after the service this morning... Uh, we'll hope to finish on time. But when the service is over, bring all of your debts up to me, and I'll sign them that they're all forgiven. So bring your mortgage papers. I'll sign it. Charles Zimmerman forgives you. Bring your car loan. Charles Zimmerman forgives you. Bring your student loans. Charles Zimmerman forgives you. Whatever you got, bring it I'll sign it. How many of you would form a line for me to sign it? Only of you that are morons would do that. I can't forgive your debts because none of you owe me anything, right? The only person that can forgive your debt is the person that you're in debt to. When Jesus says, I forgive you, he's saying, you're indebted to me, but I've paid the price for your forgiveness, right? It's not her love, it's Jesus' love. And since she is primarily indebted to Jesus, he's the one that can forgive her sin. The story tells us the whole gospel, doesn't it? Well, I don't want to end with lessons, because I don't think that's where Jesus was going with this incident. I want to end with a question. And it isn't a question that's just tucked away here. This question is all over the New Testament. Here's the question. Are you more like Simon or more like the woman? Now, just think about it. Are you more like Simon or more like the woman? Uh, Are you really religious and you like regulations and you like to jump through hoops and you think, you know, you kind of have made lots of improvement and you work real hard at being disciplined and you work pretty hard, you know, at making sure your life's in order and you work on your marriage. You sign up for 626 and you, know, you try to raise your kids the right way. And then you look around at some derelicts out there and they're not jumping through any of the hoops. Right. And you just feel a little superior to them. I think, well, you know, God really should love somebody like me. After all, look, look at me. I'm doing all this really good stuff. I'm doing a lot of stuff God says. But these other filthy, creepy people, I don't think God can really love or care for th- Is that you? Uh, can I let you know a little secret? If you resemble Simon more than the woman, you're in a world of trouble. And that's not a theme that's only in this passage. That theme is all over the Bible. And here's the reason. Human beings are incurably religious, and religion will destroy your life. Simon was the religious guy, right? Simon memorized all the commands. He knew all the right theology. He was the guardian of truth. He set up the hoops, jumped through the hoops, presented the hoops. Simon was a religious guy. And by the time you get to the end of the story, Simon's far from God. And the woman that lived a sinful life, she's in the arms of Jesus. Remember the parable of the prodigal sons? Same story, right? Same themes. The younger son, Runs away, squanders his share of the inheritance on wild, riotous living. Returns home. The father welcomes him back, celebrates the big party. The older brother, self-righteous and arrogant, full of pride, looking down his nose at his sinful younger brother. He's out in the field. The father goes and begs him to come in. The parable ends. We don't know whether he came in or not. Same story. We're incurably religious. And religion will destroy your life and your eternity. Are you more like Simon, or are you more like the woman? You see, the woman knew who Jesus was. She knew he was the great prophet who knew all of her inward secrets. She knew and believed he was the Messiah who came to bring forgiveness and pay the debt for her sin. She received the forgiveness of $40,000 worth of sin. And in response, thanksgiving and gratitude, she now pours out her life to the one who poured out his life for her. Old Simon, he doesn't need a savior. he doesn't need a redeemer. He's got this thing licked. He can handle it. He knows what the rules are. He knows where the hoops are. He's jumping through pretty well. Who do you resemble most in that story? I don't worry for those of you that are more like the sinner from the city. But I worry a lot for you. Pompous Pharisees like Simon. You think you're better than other people. Look down your self righteous, critical noses at others, thinking that you figured this out. They need to figure it out too. You've disciplined your life. They need to discipline their lives too. That just shows how far we are from understanding who we are and the debt Jesus paid and the amazing grace that he offers to us. Same story over and over and over again i sure hope we get it and i hope we live in light of it so we're in a series called this is the life so let me tell you the self-righteous critical pompous life simon lived that's not the life the life of the woman who knew the depth of her sin who jesus was and the debt he paid for her and gives her life to him. That, friends, is the life. And Jesus invites us to it. Well, Calvary Church had a pretty tough week this week. We lost another of our charter members. It seems they're uh, leaving us pretty regularly these days. This past week, uh, Les Clemens, passed into eternity. Les was one of the charter members of Calvary Church, and he and Kay have been here through the whole time. You know, it isn't the fact that Les was a charter member that makes his life so compelling to me. It's that Les believed and lived the mission and vision of Calvary Church. Les gave and served the community called Calvary Church. And Les loved and served the greater community of this area, the region, and the world. I'd venture to say you won't have to talk to too many business leaders until the name Les Clemens comes up. And in those discussions, you'll hear about Bible studies that he started, whether it was CBMC, whether it was FCA, whether it was coming alongside business leaders to help. Les served the church, And less live to love and serve the larger community. And less lived out the absolutes, convictions, and preferences that we talk about an awful lot. I have the sneaking suspicion that every once in a while, the music we played didn't hit less in his sweet spot. I'm just guessing. And every once in a while, maybe how I said something or the words I used was not in his normal conversational range. I never, ever heard Les critique any of that. Les would say to me, Charles, make the gospel clear. Make it compelling. And do whatever else you want to do. That's not bad. You know what makes me nervous when charter members like Les leave our community? I get nervous because I wonder who's going to take their place. Les gave of his time and his energy, and Les prayed for this ministry every day. So who's going to take the place of those founders when they go? Maybe that's part of what God's inviting you to today. Let's stand and pray. We'll have a memorial service this afternoon at 4 o'clock. You're welcomed and invited to come to that and ask yourself the question, are those shoes that maybe God's calling you to fill? Father, we give you thanks for this woman who's described in Luke chapter 7, who didn't care what people thought. She just came to say thank you and poured her life out at the feet of a Savior who poured his life out for her. And we're thankful for Les Clemens, who experienced the love and forgiveness and poured his life out at the feet of his Savior, Jesus. Lord, I pray that uh, you'd help us to see who Jesus is, to pour our lives out at his feet as well. We pray in his name. Amen. If you'd like to chat with someone, there'll be people up here to talk to you. Otherwise, you folks have a great day.